Would you like to publicly express your love and passion for cinema, but such displays are not welcome at work? Do you dream of wearing a t-shirt with Jet from Gladiators on it, but you can't find one in the Fruit de Lune collection? Have you always wanted to plaster your bag with stickers of your favourite directors, but you feel like you're a little bit too old? Then go to devlindoesdrawing.com where you can buy the memories of your favourite films and the filmmakers that made them. Posters, t-shirts and mugs. So don't let life pass you by. Go to devlindoesdrawing.com for the memories of a lifetime. Delivery guaranteed in two weeks. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Gally, and we have another interview today as part of our Open Slate series. Yeah, yeah thank you. Uh, where we speak to film and television professionals about their careers, how they got into the industry, and uncover any advice they might have for those wanting to pursue a career in film and television. Our guest today is a bit of a walk-in living legend, breathing legend. It's it's Luke Selway, who we've mentioned many, many times on the show. Welcome, Luke, to The Open Slate. Yes. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We've been trying to get you on for a while now, Luke, and uh, I suppose we've hit the right time with the strikes. Yeah, it always helps, downing pools. Yeah, yeah. How has, uh, how has it been for you recently? Uh, yeah, same as everyone, really. Trying to stay positive with it, finding things to do around the house. Very lucky to have a lovely house in Surrey, in the lovely Surrey Hills, um, and a lovely family. So trying to spend a bit of time with them. Not always able to do with a freelance life. So, Luke, I suppose the first question I have to ask is, what is your role within the industry currently? What is it you do? So I'm I'm also a, a camera assistant, um, as Aidan was, our lovely friend Aidan in Vancouver. Friend of the um, show. Friend of the show. I, I'm currently a first AC as well. Um, we we all went to uni together, as as you said, and um, and then after I joined the industry, I've worked my way up the ranks um, from being a camera trainee, um, stepping up to be a central loader, then a second AC on the floor, and then a first AC. And I've been first ACing now for um, seven years, coming up for eight years. Oh wow. Mm. Yeah. forgive me Luke that's longer than I thought that's time's really flown by there that's awesome it's part of the plan though Paddy because yeah. I always said when I left uni left uni at 21 in my head I was like 10 years as a loader 10 years as a focus puller 10 years as an operator that takes me to 50 retire house in the country that's the plan that's the grand plan <laughs> I look forward to seeing you on a place in the sun uh, clearly the, the plan is to, <laughs> to get that second home in uh, in Spain or South Africa or wherever it may be. Yeah. Well, bloody hell, G- Gally asked me what my five-year plan was in my episode, <laughs> and I didn't realise you'd already had a 30-year plan. That's what separates Luke from the rest of us. It, I, uh, you're, quite right. you're quite right. Because Luke, for us at uni, I hope you don't mind me saying, but you, you, were, you were the golden boy. Mm. You were the one, you were the chosen one who got on that set very quickly and went from there, right? Yeah, I think I, I kind of got a name early because, but, but it was nothing but luck, let's be honest. Because, you know, the, the great thing about Leeds Met, for all its foibles um, as a course to study at, my, my, my greatest appreciation for it was the fact that they forced you to do work experience part of every semester as i remember it you had to complete it was maybe two weeks of work experience and that might have been working on someone's master's film or someone else's short film or whatever or if you could get it it was working in the industry and i think it was literally the first semester i emailed whoever was in the office bless her and i just said oh by the way you know Luke Selway looking to get work in the camera department and I must have emailed her 10 minutes after she'd got this email from a TV show looking for for some free help um it was a thing called um the Martianess disaster which was an ITV thing which which actually never aired <clears throat> but it was a quite a big ITV show at the time or Yorkshire TV as it was uh, and they were looking for a local person to help the camera department no money it was but it was 4 weeks work <clears throat> 
and and I obviously emailed her at the right time uh, and got on that and so yeah it kind of all began there and um and and carried on from there oh wow I thought ghost boat was your first one I yeah, didn't realize I, that I one. thought it was you and you know you got kind of cozy with David Jason on the ghost yeah, boat. No, no, that was that was a little while into it to be honest with you I well my first paycheck <laughs> on a film actually was way back in uh i think it must have been early 2000s um i was probably at college um studying like media studies and you know a couple of other things and my mum who has <clears throat> always for a living run uh, nursing homes and she got an email from disney saying disney was shooting a film down in in Essex, where I grew up, um, and they needed some elderly people to be extras. The scene was going to take place in an old people's home, and could they use her old people and her house? You know, the, the place that she ran. She, she owned them. And of course, my mum said yes, and uh, she said, "But but my son, he's interested in the film industry. Can he come along and help? Oh, like he wow. can hand out sandwiches and stuff like that." Um, and they were like, yeah, of course you can. So I went and did it and they shot for two days and it was a, it was a film called the kinky boots, kinky boots factory. I think it might've been called. Right. Um, and, and I can remember, and I wish I'd kept it, but I remember about, I, all I did was hand out sandwiches to little old ladies and you know, all that. But I got a, a, a stub. Do you remember the old pay slips where you got a thing yeah, through the yeah, you had yeah. like a perforated thing on the bottom and you ripped it off and that was your check for what you worked on. I got one of those and it said Disney. Oh, wow. To me. And and that was my first thing. And that was like, oh, that's the buzz. Do you know what I mean? That was like, oh my God, I just got a check from Disney. This is amazing. <laughs> so it's a little bit more impressive than my first paycheck, which was for Republic Jeans were Leicester. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it was Pizza Hut. So um, yeah, top trumps, you've won. God. <laughs> that's awesome. I had no idea. That's Yeah, yeah so then it started and then, and then, yeah, so I, I started getting, um, so I did that job. So I did Marchioness Disaster. That was, it was actually pretty hard work. It was four weeks of nights. So they shot on the river in York, um, which was doubling up for the Thames because they weren't allowed to shoot on the Thames for whatever reason. Um, and it's, it's a disaster story. Um, but they, yeah, so basically I, I helped the camera department and did all the jobs of a camera trainee, but for free. At the end of the four weeks, they bought me two crates of beer. That was my that was my payment for doing that, but what it did is it curried favour with those guys and and the camera team on that the first AC the operator the DOP then when they next got a paid gig where they could have a paid trainee um, they asked me to come back and that was um, uh, Yorkshire Television's premium premiere show. Wow! I'm a touch of frost. Gosh. So can you tell us a little bit about what a camera trainee or what you as camera trainee back then did? Well, so it kind of, it, it's changed a little bit now, but, but then you, obviously you're learning the, you're learning the job, but um, in TV world, you're responsible for obviously looking after the camera department, be it cups of tea and coffee, helping with lunches, carrying batteries, making things, making sure kit's clean, batteries are charged. But in telly, you're also, or at least then, you were also left in charge of video, video playback. Um, so you had to look after that. You probably, I was probably also looking after the grip department. Um, and uh, back then, we it was all film. There wasn't really any digital cameras that were doing anything other than live broadcast. So we were shooting on 16 mil, and and so. Shooting on film, obviously the assistant that's on the floor, the second AC, is that it's their responsibility to load and download the film that you shoot on. Now a mag on 16 mil will last 10 minutes. So it basically means every 10 minutes that second AC has to step offset, go into either a tent or a dark room on a truck, download, reload, come back onto set. So every 10 minutes, basically, I was put on set and left in charge of what what he's doing his job. So that was marking actors, putting up slates, doing all that kind of thing. And then when I'd built up enough trust with him, he would then say, well, why don't you go and load the film and I'll stay on set 
and, and that's really then how the process starts and, and you learn how to load the film and then you, you take on that responsibility and you gradually you, you take on more and more responsibility. Did you shit yourself the first film stock you had to load? <laughs> I did every time. <laughs> of my career. I'll you the, the, the look on my face, although I have to say the amount of times I opened a, a loading tent with film, looked at it, unzipped, and then you unzip the other side and you look and you can see the film and you go, shit, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be able to see that. <laughs> in recall, you know, it's like Inception. It lasted like 10 minutes in your head. Actually, you're hoping in real time it was only about two seconds and you closed the lid as quickly as you could and you zipped up over things and you didn't tell a soul because you wow. couldn't possibly tell a soul because then you'd really get bollocked. <laughs> I have, um, I, I was very fortunate, um, listeners, that Luke took me on as a camera trainee on uh, Rob, Rid- Sir Wrigley Scott's Robin Hood. Sir Wrigley, yeah. Sir Wrigley, um, in 2009, I want to say. And I have very fond memories of you, fag hanging out your mouth, loading film stock for uh, 10 hours a day straight. <laughs> that was That was rampant. I mean, that was really the thing is that, that you know, going back to that, growing up in a, a, as a camera assistant in a time when we only shot on film has really followed me through my career. And I, and I did get a bit of a name as someone that certainly because I was one of the last generations to work mm. a lot on film before it all changed. And I think it probably what you started this little segment saying, Paddy, that, that you know, I was a bit of a hot shot at uni was only because I'd worked on film. Yeah, yeah, quite. When it came to shooting our stuff, I had the guts and the, you know, the balls to say, no, I'll, you know, we, I want to shoot on film. Galley wants to shoot on film. Yeah. I've got this experience, let us shoot on film. And I think that kind of, you know, that helped us do what we did. Luke, can I, can I go back to that, um, to that first experience with you emailing out from university? Uh, and, and Patrick's mentioned it about, you know, we genuinely... And this is not kind of uh, smoke up your arse or anything like that. But we genuinely did. You know, we were all very, very proud of you. But we were also kind of like, what has he done? How has he managed it? Like, <laughs> but I think I think it speaks to the fact that from a very, very young age and kind of your your 50-year plan as well also speaks to it. Um, you were very, very sure of what you wanted to do. And you were very direct and you went went for it. And I think if I look back at when I was at university... I talked a good game, but actually, you know, you mentioned about that work experience being on on a master's shoe or or something like that. It all sounds very impressive, but it's still, you know, with the best will in the world, you're still with trainees, really. They're just at a master's level. I don't think I had the balls to kind of put my name out there. I think I, I was genuinely frightened about making mistakes. And I think one of the things that you've you inspired us even then, and now it's even more so just seeing how far you've gone. It's a case of like, if you want something, you just got to go out there and, and grab it. I think so. I think, listen, you know, I just, uh, I just, I, from my perspective, I just worked hard. That's all I really did. And, and the other thing that I've learned, which I don't quite know how I appreciated it so much when I was, was coming up, but um, was was just to take pride in what you were doing, regardless of if it was the little job. So I I kind of got it. I did I, I did that, and I did some teledramas as a trainee, and then I got uh, when we finished uni, I got my first ever feature film, also as a trainee, um, and working with a lovely camera department. And I didn't, you know, I was like, well, I've this now I've got to up my game, right? Because now this is a film. This is actually like a feature film. And I went and bought myself some trousers, right? I don't know if you've ever seen the trousers, <laughs> the Snickers trousers. They were like workwear for men. <laughs> men and they've got these extra extra pockets that are like elephant's ears that come yeah. out of the side. Right? And I was just like, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was like, well, what can I fit in these pockets? So I basically used to carry everything I could possibly think of that I might possibly need as a trainee in these big floppy pockets in my trousers. And, and, and the second <laughs> that I was working for still to this day calls me trousers. He doesn't call me trousers. <laughs> Hello, trousers. Sometimes occasionally you'll say, all right, strides. And it, and it became a thing that was like, you need, you need tea. I got tea. You need sugar. I got sugar. Knife, fork, spoon, everything. And it was just, it was just like, but, but, but what that was, was me kind of just going, 
well, I know this is a crap job. You're going and making people cups of tea. Those people are doing something really important. How can you support them? You know, I'm not just going to bring them a cup of tea. I'm going to bring some biscuits. And it, and it's that mentality, I think, that helped was like, well, whatever you're doing, do it to the best of your ability and take a bit of pride in it and don't dip your finger in your tea as you're handing it to them. <laughs> you know, it's an important thing. It's a bit above and beyond, right, Luke, like in your day to day practice. Well, it is. Well, it isn't. It isn't because everyone's got everyone's above and beyond is different. Right. Every every rank, every level has an above and beyond. And if you're not aspiring to do what the person above you does, then then why are you there? Like, so you've got to impress people. And if the if your job like a, a camera operator sees a trainee, they don't see them charging the batteries they don't see them doing the camera sheets they don't see them sweeping the truck they see someone handing them a cup of tea every two hours they see someone making sure they've got hot food when hot food's available they see like you know that i don't know they've you know moved someone that's blocked their car in that's the things that they see and although that's not directly involved in the film industry like that's the bit that they see so you have to you have to take on those responsibilities and take pride in them. And also the thing is, if you don't take pride in stuff, you're it's going to be rubbish. Of course it is. Oh, making tea again. You know, this is rubbish. But actually, if you go, oh, I'm going to bring some biscuits. What is there? Bourbons, chocolates. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And that's great. And oh, actually, last time at this time of night, he didn't want it. He wanted a coffee, not a tea. So I'm going to get him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it shows a sense of pride and then and, and it carries on and it really does. Well, I can imagine that the takeaway for a lot of our listeners is to get really big pair of trains. Really <laughs> from, from really big pockets. Whatever job they're doing, even though they don't want to work in film and television. If I'm in an office, I'm going to get pockets full of trousers. Yeah, they'll be calling you trousers yeah. in no time. <laughs> it was a line as well when I was trying to find a girlfriend or a wife because then he'd walk past and he'd go, you're right, trousers. And the girl look and go, Why him they trousers? call him trousers? It's, like, it's not what you think. I've got biscuits. I've got biscuits. That's, right. it's a three, that's a three boy. That's a three beer story. You'll have to buy me a couple of beers. Some strange uh, Cockney rhyming song. You want some biscuits? <laughs> how how was um, the start of your career as well? In um, you did four weeks unpaid, which at that time travel and everything to and from set can be quite difficult. But then, when did you? get to move to London and kind of start making a career of it? That film, which was a film called Brian Ted Revisited, which was just as we finished uni, three of us, um, and the the lovely crew, pa- uh, Paulie, who I was talking about, who, who nicknamed me, um, he, about three quarters of the way through that film, he came up to me and he said, I've just had a call for, um, for Harry Potter. He said, mm. I'm not it i'm not going to do it because i've he'd already done two or three of these films and he was like it's a big commitment and i don't want to be away from the family and blah 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 blah. he said but do you want me to stick your name in to the guys that are going to do it and i said wow that's amazing thank you so much yes please do so i got an interview for that it's the one and only time i've ever actually had an interview in this industry and i went down to london and i met the camera assistants and um, and I'd obviously gotten a, a glowing report from the guys that I'd been working with. And I don't know how many people they interviewed, but, I, you know, I got the job. Um, and that was that. That was me moving down to London. That was nine months on a, on a big feature film in a big studio, which I'd never done before. I can still remember the first time I walked into Leaves and Studios before it was revamped. It looks lovely and shiny now, and it's got its lovely studio floor. Uh, <laughs> And everything like that, but to be fair, when when <laughs> making the movies, you know, you could you had to watch where you put your kit because it might get rained on overnight because there were holes in the roof and all sorts of things. But I can remember walking there, and on big films like that, particularly that they they have like a plasterer's workshop, um, and because all the sets, all the walls, and everything made from plaster. And I can remember, Paddy, you'll know this smell like the visceral smell of plaster plaster made sets and it's got this amazing smell and i that's my biggest memory of like starting on that film walking into this place and smelling 
this plasterer's workshop, which is, I don't know what the product is that they use that you smell, but it's like, it's really strong. And then you walk in and you're like, you're in the great hall and it's like, this is, this is something different. You know, this is something else. God, I'd love to. Yeah. I'd, I would have loved to walked on that set for work. I remember seeing, um, your picture in Empire Magazine holding a clapper. Yeah. I think it was outside the, um, the Weasleys. There it is. Oh, he's holding it up for us. Oh, we've got it. Yeah. We'll have to share that photo as well, Gally, because that is a cracker. That photo also, by the way, um, is on the walls in Panavision, London. Oh, wow. God, I half I forget like how extensive your CV is now. Yeah, you know what, Luke? I never even we never even um, established this. We've we've kind of uh, yeah, we've just kind of assumed that everyone knows who Luke Selwood is just because he's got <laughs> you know, trousers. Any everyone knows trousers. Um, I mean, why don't you just reel some of them off? I mean, you know, so we've already kind of name checked Harry Potter, but you've got some you've got some really impressive films, and then then from that we can probably extrapolate kind of how you've navigated through them and, and why you chose them as well. Cause I think you were getting to a point where you could choose films, right? But um, what, what have you done then? So, well, so going on from Harry Potter, which was my last traineeship, that was the last time I was a trainee was on Harry Potter. Um, I then, I mean, lots of films. It's a really great industry in, in England. We've got a re- we make a lot of Hollywood movies in the UK. People probably don't know. But it, we make a hell of a lot of the of the of Hollywood's product over here. So I mean, Sherlock Holmes, Alice in Wonderland, Ridley Scott's uh, Robin Hood, uh, John Carter of Mars, uh, Dark Shadows, Fast and the Furious, World War Z, Captain Phillips. I mean, I've done bits on Bonds. I've done bits on Batman's. I've done bits on Avengers movies. Um, I don't know, we did Jason Bourne movies, we did the Mummy remakes, I've done, did a couple of the Jurassic Worlds. Um, Where I mean, did we work together, Luke? You and I? I think, I remember you on Aladdin. Yeah. And Aladdin. Snow White recently. Snow White recently, and yeah, you were picking up uh, arrowheads on, on, on Robin Hood. Oh yeah, I've still got, I've still got two. Age of Ultron. <laughs> Age of Ultron, Age of Ultron we saw each other there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what else, but yeah, but you know, lots of things. I've been very lucky, and and I fell into that crowd. That um, you know, as I'm sure your listeners know, like the the industry's kind of split three ways. There's there's the cliques that do television, and there's the little cliques that do commercials, and there's the little cliques that do feature films. There's you know, there's a little bit of crossover occasionally, and especially now with like bigger tv becoming a bigger thing netflix hbo etc that boundary between tv and features is has shortened but still i think in crewing terms certainly from a camera department perspective you know you're oh you're part of the features lot are oh, you're part of the tv lot are oh, you you mostly do commercials don't you you know it's like you kind of are split up in that way a little bit and luke can i can i scratch that a little bit is that is that a skill set thing or is that literally almost like a kind of cultural you know work practices how what why why is that or is it literally just kind of a legacy thing yeah from it's, it's, the, i think it's literally days? nothing more than who you know it's the old adage ultimately it, it comes down to the fact that we all we all want to work with our mates right we all do a job <laughs> that no it, i mean that basically is isn't it you this job, you work, as all your guests have said on this open slate, the open slate. The open slate, um, yeah. Uh, you know, this job is 10, 12, 15 hours a day, five, six, sometimes seven days a week. You will see the people you're working with more than you will see your wife, than you will see your children at times, and certainly more than you'll see your friends. And so what's more important than anything, certainly from the technical, uh, doing a technical job, is that you get on with the people that you're working with. That's hugely important because it takes a lot to be, you know, nose to nose with people for 10 hours on a sweaty little set in a bedroom and not get on each other's nerves. Technical skills can be learned. Technical skills can be taught. You know, you can teach someone to load film. You can teach someone how to pull focus and which way the lens goes on a camera and all that stuff. But actually socially being able to interact with people and and not annoy each other for long periods of time is by far more important than anything else. 
There's a, there's a lot of trust with that as well, Luke, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely, because you're all in it together. I mean, I, I you know, I, I have always, when I first started in the camera department, they, like, they, you know, there was a bit of an old school approach and, and they used to say, you know, that it's it's run a little bit like the military. Do you know what I mean? It's like you're in the army. There's a lot of yes, sir, no, sir, calling people sir. And, you know, you're handing over a bit of equipment. It's yours, it's mine, mine, yours, yours, mine. Things like that, protocols that you're that you're taught in a repetitive nature to get you to do things in, in the correct way. And it is kind of military. And then when you go away on work, it's I, I also imagine it's what it's what it's like being in the ministry in the in the uh, military whereby you work hard, but then everyone plays really hard as well in the evenings and you become a really knit crew. In regards to that then, Luke, is that is that the secret sauce then? Because part of you know, part of the aim of doing this series is not only to kind of get an insight into you and your uh, your your journey, but also for those that are that are genuinely interested in either understanding or wanting to pursue a career. Emotional intelligence, I guess. Um, or, or just the ability to interact and understand team dynamics. Yeah. Something again is that. I mean, I'm not saying it can be taught. It can be, I suppose. You can become more socially malleable, but that's something you've got to be aware of, right? You know, you you have to understand that there's a hierarchy, and that you pick your moments. I suppose you know, like for example, if I wanted to be friendly with you, let's say I'm camera trainee one on your next feature film. Bold. Yeah, yeah, very. Yeah, well, it's a different line of work for me. Um, uh, Only two pockets, so uh, go back and change your trousers, son. Um, But let's say that's the case. Me trying to, like, I don't know, uh, build up a rapport with you. You got to pick your moments, right? You wouldn't necessarily. I, I don't know. How does that work for you? Because you know, you've kind of you've told us your incredible journey, and I suppose uh, there's a part of it that's like. What's the secret? Can't just be trousers. There definitely is, you know, when, when, and Patrick will know this when he gets PAs as well, there's, there's a hundred percent a feeling as soon as you meet someone within 10, 15 minutes, you've got an idea of if they're going to fit and if they understand the kind of unspoken, unwritten rules of what you're doing, because we're not saving lives. We're not doctors and, and we're not nurses and we're not in the army, but, it, it is run in that way and it's run with that importance. The first, one of the first lessons that you will get taught at any rank in, in the film industry is that if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that lesson. <laughs> How many times have you been late? But, but that's the respect thing, and, and it's, it's understanding that although we aren't saving lives, it is incredibly important to a lot of people, and it is costing an absolute fortune to run a film set. I've no idea what the figure is for a day on a film set, but it's got to be in the hundreds of thousands, I would have thought, at least per day. And so if you turn up 10 minutes late, you're, you know that, that has a huge repercussion on a 10-hour day. My, I mean, my advice really to someone starting out on what you were saying, Gally, about how do you approach people? How do you talk to people? And it is to pick your moments because you have to, the, the, the most learning I ever do and ever done on a film set and still do now is when I stop and listen and observe because that's how you learn what everybody does on a film set and I tell my trainees and I and I get a little bit annoyed with trainees these days that when they've done the task you've asked them to do they're you know so bring me this lens they bring you the lens and then immediately they walk off and they go and have a chat to to somebody else on the set and I think well I never did that because I want to see how he puts the lens on I want to see what what other bits of surplus equipment maybe he's going to need after that. I want to see why they've changed from the first lens to the second lens. And I'm never going to understand any of that. If I'm but you can maybe preempt the next request, right? So exactly. You... Well, that's, and again, that's, you know, we're fast forwarding from the first thing you learn about being late. to when you get really good, 
when you when you really observe and you stop and you and he's changed the lens and then you watch them do the shot and you go and you look at the monitor and you go okay so they've gone a bit tighter now so what mm-hmm. what does that mean okay that means his job's a bit harder because now he's got a less depth of field that means that oh the boom operator is going to creep in a bit closer now because the the frame is smaller so he's going to be moving in so maybe he's now going to be blocking my view from when i do this Oh, the lighting guys, they're going to want to bring in a softbox now because we're going into a close-up. Oh, the, the actor's walking really close to him now. What did he ask for last time when, when he had to mm-hmm. do a really big focus pull? Oh, a toffee hammer because little toffee hammer that helps you turn the lens quicker. And, and the greatest compliment you can get, as you said, Gally, is when someone turns around to ask for something, you're stood there with it in your hand. And the compliment they'll give you is quicker next time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that literally means perfect. You've done a great thing because you are there and you've preempted and you've thought and you've known what he's needed and you've had it in your hand before he's even asked for it. And that goes back to your cup of tea trick, Luke. Well, exactly. And it and and it, it's just it's it's really we all join the film industry, certainly when you're um, coming into it, making short films and stuff, and it's a hobby. And then it, it changes a little bit when you start to work professionally because someone's paying for your service and and it's a business thing. And it's very easy to um, to then start to get a bit down on the whole process because it starts to become a business thing in your head. It's less about that fun and the emotion and the enjoyment of the set that you're on and the people that you're around. It's more like, oh, they're asking us to do overtime again. Oh, I'm going to miss you know, football practice or, oh, you know, oh, he's not, he's not paying me for my equipment this week. That's really crap, you know, and you start to get a bit down on it. And what brings you back up is when you just stop and reset and and enjoy where you are and enjoy what you're doing um, because it's, a, it's an amazing thing to be part of this creative industry. And, you know, you get natural resets as well. I, I did, so I'm trying to think, I can't think how long it was ago now, 10 years maybe. But I, I got a call from a focus puller that I'd, I'd worked with. And I was a second AC at that point looking to step up to do some focus pulling. And this this focus puller called me and he said, I'm, I'm, someone's called me for a job. I can't do it. And it sort of sounds like, you know, it might be a good one for you to cut your teeth on. Mm. Um, and he said, basically, it's this director and he wants to he's borrowing his cameraman's camera. Right, and that was the reason he'd called me, because this camera was an Arton Penelope, which was Arton made a really good, well-renowned 16mm cameras, but their 35mm camera wasn't particularly popular and not a lot of people shot on it. But the years before that, I had done um, Captain Phillips, um, which was a film with Tom Hanks in it, uh, um, and we'd shot on the Penelope, so I knew this camera. So the focus builder called me and he said, you know the Penelope, don't you? Right, my cameraman's got a Penelope and his one of his directors wants to shoot a little short documentary and he's going to borrow his camera so I thought maybe you could do it he said there's not a lot of money in it you know this is the money it's not very good but it's two days work and and you know it'd be a good one for you to cut your teeth on so I was like yeah okay great get the phone get the phone call okay can you can you would you mind picking up the kit because it's not really, it's not really a big thing this and I was like yeah okay that's fine oh, got a prep day and I was like okay great it's quite nervous but I got all, went to the rental house, got all the kit, sort of did all the checks. I thought, and then halfway through the day, I got a call from the from the guard, from the producer, and, and he said, "Would you mind? The director wants you to finish prepping at his house. Would you mind doing that? Would you mind driving the kit to Kensington, <laughs> London?" And I was like, yeah, <laughs> "London, all right." I didn't think I was sort of driving the kit as well, but I, I'll do that. That's fine. So I got all the kit, loaded it into my car, drove into London like into the heart of London, found this house. I was like, wow, this is a pretty swanky place. Walked in, showed me through. Yeah, you can go down into the basement, prep the kit. I was like, all right, fine. So I kind of did an hour carrying on. And then the director walked in and it was Christopher Nolan. <laughs> and I was like, uh... <laughs> like oh, hi, I'm Christopher. How you doing? Are you Luke? Oh, you're helping us with this thing. Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. So he said, well, can you change that lens? Yeah, I want a faster lens for that. I need more stock because there's not going to be much light in there. And can you get me a, a follow focus to go on there? Because 
we're going to need that. And have you checked the cine tapes accurately? And I was like, I was a bit kind of overwhelmed because it was asking me a lot of questions that felt like they were the right grade. <laughs> I wasn't at that grade yet. And it was Christopher Nolan, who, apart from his reputation, is a very tall, imposing man. You know, he's got a huge aura when he walks into a room. So anyway, so that was fine. So I did made the changes, came back the next day, little... Um, studio in hackney where these brothers i'm not sure if they're american or canadian called the the quay brothers or the key brothers i'm not sure how you pronounce it but they 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 do um animation stop motion with puppets and stuff and basically i spent the next two days in a in this little room me christopher nolan and a sound guy <laughs> and these two blokes that we were interviewing following them around their little studio shooting we shot it all on film he, Christopher, uh, he lit it, you know, he shot it, operated it all handheld. I was sort of, he was mostly pulling focus, but I was jumping on the knob if, if, if I ever needed to. And oh. I was loading the film, I was gripping it. I did all the camera sheets, downloaded and reloaded the film and, sh and you know, uh, drove the kit there and back. <clears throat> and, and it was an amazing experience because it, I went from like, I think the, what was the film I'd maybe done before that was, you know, something like, Jason Bourne, one of the Bourne films, and I was like the A camera loader, and I kind of felt really confident in my job, and I was the the A camera on a main unit doing a big film, and then I I was doing this completely overpowered and over overdrawn by this bloke that was this amazing director. I think he might have just done Dunkirk at that point, or wow. maybe just was just about to do Dunkirk. <laughs> And it's just me and him and a sound guy. And we go to lunch and you hear him talking about, oh, he was telling me, telling us the people at the table stories about how he did the sound design on, on Inception and how, you know, he, he got his guys to, his composer to elongate the, <laughs> the first note to last the first 39 seconds of the movie or whatever, you know, whatever the story is told. And it was just such a different experience, such a reset. To kind yeah. of be thrown in for one, doing a job you you weren't really confident doing yet, on such a personal level with with what you know, obviously someone who is an incredible director. That's, I've never heard that tale. Me, me neither, uh, and that's that, blown me away. That is amazing, especially because I, I must admit I thought we were going a little bit Jake Gyllenhaal, David Fincher, Zodiac there when you were like <laughs> drive to Kensington, big basement. <laughs> In there for an hour. I was like, get out, Luke. Get out of that That's basement. Insane. Oh, wait, it's Christopher Nolan. It's fine. Did, Stay. I imagine Stay you um, you thanked your contact for that, Luke. I did, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I do daily. He's here. Yeah, <laughs> Hello, Austin. Hello, Basil. I see you're drinking the office instant coffee. Cool. This coffee smells like shit. It is shit, Austin. Oh, good. Then it's not just me. We at the Rewind Movie Podcast have discovered a new and exciting coffee company called the Unorthodox Roasters. Whoop-de-doo! What does it all mean, Basil? It means, Austin, you can get great-tasting coffee at affordable prices from around the world by ordering online and getting it delivered straight to your door. And you can select whether you want your coffee ground or whole bean. Just head over to www.unorthodoxroasters.co.uk to check out their fantastic range of coffee blends and products. Here, try mine, freshly brewed. It's a bit nutty. Well, Austin, the Unorthodox Roasters produce a wide range of fantastic coffee that caters to your taste. And if you want, they also offer a subscription service from three months up to 12 months. So you never need to worry about having to sample the instant coffee offering at the office. Smashing, Basil. So why don't you wake up the right way with the Unorthodox Roasters? Links to the site can be found in the show notes. It's groovy, baby. You talk of reset with that experience. I'm by no means calling this a reset, but you've grown with a beautiful family in recent years. Is that another kind of, I would say challenge, but how did that affect your career and your home life and the balance with working, the hours that we do and commitment, working abroad and um, being at home? Yeah, I mean, it, it is hard, but lots of things are hard. My, my um, 
thought process my you know of of it all generally speaking with a lot of things is if you want something enough you you'll make it work you know we when we first started dating my wife and I you know we wanted to get a dog we both work in the film industry and we were like you can't get a dog you know that's 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 no good that's not going to work to have a dog but then we were like well we really want a dog so can we make it work so we're like yeah, I think we can. You take her to work and she can sit in the office in the AD trailer when you're taking her to work. And I'm a central loader at this point. She can come on the truck with me and, and, and that's fine. And then we'll hire dog walkers when we can't be there. And we really want to have a dog. So we're going to make it work and we're going to um, get a dog. What a dog it was as well. And what a dog she was. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I guess the same for, for home life. Obviously, I'm lucky in a sense that Sarah also works in the film industry. So she understands and has an appreciation of the hours that we work and that I might not, you know, I can't tell her at six o'clock in the evening if I'm coming home or not, because they haven't told us if we're doing overtime. Things like that, obviously, you know, she has an, an understanding of that, which helps. Um, and I have done a lot of travel in my sort of second half. Well, more, most recently, I suppose, the last kind of eight, to 10 years, I've done a lot of traveling with work. I've kind of ended up falling into circles of people that do a lot of second units of movies which tends to be where you travel a bit more tends to be where you're away from home for long periods um and you do all the kind of stunty stuff and the stuff that takes a long time to do so that obviously is hard and uh, you know you've got young kids and stuff but again you make it work listen i once uh, when i was on a film uh, five years ago, maybe, no, maybe not, four years ago, on Fast and Furious 9, and my best mate was getting married, and we were in, we were shooting at the time in Thailand, and he was getting married in London, but I couldn't, I, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I yeah, yeah. miss the wedding, so on the Friday night, I went to the airport, and I flew to Bangkok, and I flew from Bangkok to London and I was in London for about 32 hours <laughs> and then I flew back to Thailand again to go back to work on the Monday if you want something enough like you, you're going to do it and you're going to make it work and and you have to if you want to have a life because it can be it, it can be all consuming and no one wants that it is just a job you know you're, you've got a family and a life and that's far more important so yeah my, my ethos is just that you make if you want something enough you make it work Sorry to ask this, and obviously not naming any names, or I don't want to criticise people, but have you have you come across a lot of people who it's not for them, and they don't survive in in what you know as we've described that can be a harsh, not a harsh, but a hardworking environment. Yeah, demanding. I mean, a few, yeah, a few, but I mean, people people tend to do it for a little bit, and and I think most people that i've worked with that i felt maybe aren't suited to it have they themselves within one or two jobs gone do you know what i don't really think this is for me and they've and and they've moved on to a different career and i'm sure very successfully i don't think it's anything to to get upset about you know it's part of the journey and and it, you know you're not not everyone's going to be good at everything but, you, but you've got to enjoy it and you've got to like like i was saying earlier you know you'll go through little phases of of not enjoying things but you find ways to reawaken reawaken the um your your passion for it it's 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 interesting like watching things from a perspective of a of someone that works on films so if you watch tv shows and i don't know what patrick feels about this but some again at points you if you watch a film you watch a tv show you and you start spotting things you don't like or the technical aspects of it, then you're kind of, you've lost that, then that film has lost you and you, you've, you've been taken out of the moment. I don't know how Patrick feels about that. That's, that's how sometimes, and I think that's a testament to how good the pieces you're watching, right? You're distracted by the little things, the film's not working for you. So it's, it's, fundamentally it's problems the story, right? Which is where it, yeah, comes yeah. From. it has to be a good story. I think that's the other thing is that, at university, I, I, a lot of people came into it wanting to be a director or a DOP, and they they had a very 
distinct vision of where they wanted to be. You know, they loved Kubrick or they loved, you know, whoever it was that, that was this niche type of filmmaking. And, and I remember doing, shooting a short film for a guy at Leeds university when I was in maybe my second or third year at uni. And, and he, and he said, um, he said to me, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to watch Barry Lyndon. You've got to watch Barry Lyndon. That's, that's how I want it to look. And I watched it and I was like, this is rubbish. <laughs> this isn't interesting to me whatsoever i, I, really I can't help but feel that that's joe mac that you're talking about there no i feel i've I, like i feel the same way now watching watching things it's a massive bugbear for me to be honest like one one thing that really winds me up i don't know about what you guys think is this the notion of the one shot it just takes me out of the moment and like patrick said if something takes you out as soon as you are um as soon as you disengage from that story as soon as you see the camera moving it's gone you've lost it you've lost that moment and Mm -hmm. one of the things actually that like i'm not not trying to name drop or anything but like working with i've worked with some really great director dp combos particularly i particularly loved working i did a two or three Paul Greengrass and Barry Aykroyd movies. Mm-hmm. And I know he's kind of, Paul Greengrass may be a bit divisive for some people and some people love the way he shoots things. Some people hate it. And Barry Aykroyd, who's sort of his, has been a long-term um, collaborator with him as the cameraman. Um, and also like Ridley Scott and John Matheson, Roger Michelle and, and Mike Ely. But their, their, their approach, their ethos when they're shooting things is very much to observe what you're doing and not to get in the way. Like as a camera, you can't get in the way of an action. You're, it, it should be like live theatre. That's, that's what essentially you're doing. You're creating live theatre and the audience should just be engaging in the story that's going on. And the moment they can see that something's out of focus or that, or they can see that this, oh, look, the camera hasn't cut for a while. That's, that's, isn't that, then it's gone. It, it's out there. And, and those guys that I've worked with have got very particular ethoses in the way that they shoot things and the way that you're expected to behave as a camera to, to observe those things so that that doesn't happen. And, and I, it weirdly, I think probably one complaint that a lot of people have with green grass is that they are distracted by the camera because it's a bit shaky in some people's opinions, blah, 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 blah. But having heard him talk about, like, you know, he would never float walls when we were on there. If, he was like, well, if the camera can't get there, I don't want to shoot that shot because I'm not going to take that wall out so that we can shoot through that angle. The camera has to fit there. So you may fit there or we don't shoot the shot. Do you know what I mean? Things like that, it's like they have a set of rules and they kind of stick to them. And the same with Ridley, Ridley Scott, the work, the jobs that I've done with him, you know, he shoots with seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve cameras on every single scene. Like it's, it might be a three cam, three people round a table, but he'll shoot it with ten cameras, but he'll do one take, and that's the whole ethos of like you're observing it. He's there catching every possible angle he can so that the actors can tell the story. And no one knows that there. No one knows the camera's there. No one mm. knows it's being put. You know Which I mean? film that you've worked on, Luke, best uh, 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 exemplifies what you just said there? And what's your favourite scene, like film, excuse me, to have worked on where you've enjoyed it and the camera's done exactly as you said there? That is uh, non-obtrusive for you. Well, I mean, certainly the the favourite experience as a as a film would have been doing Captain Phillips with, with Paul Greengrass and Barry Aykroyd, which was a, a Tom Hanks film about Somali pirates. It was based on a true story, based on a book. Um, and it, it was the greatest lesson in, in um, <clears throat> just observing, because you learn so much from Barry, who's an amazing cameraman, what, like the best handheld cameraman you'll ever meet, documentary background. He was Ken Loach's cameraman. He, he's incredible. Um, but that was like an immersive experience just to be on the set because we shot that in Malta. We turned up in Malta and I didn't really know what I was, I got, I got sent a script and told, you know, a call from my friend who's like, we're going to do this film. It's called Merce, Alabama. 
And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, sounds cool. No, no idea. Is it? He's like, you're going to love it. We're going to Malta. <laughs> That's going to be wicked. It's like 12 weeks in Malta. You're going to have a great time. It's great. And I didn't really clock what I was going into, but I, you know, we turned up at the Grand Harbour in Malta this to unload our truck. And they were like, yeah, you're, you're putting it in there. And you said, look, <laughs> the sister ship to the one in the, sto- the one in the story was called the Maersk Alabama. We had the Maersk Alexander, which Whoa. was the sister ship of the container ship that got hijacked in the story. And he was pointing at one of the containers on the back of the, tr- on the back of the ship. And he was like, yeah, every department gets one container. You load your kit in there. It stays in there for the next 10 weeks. You'll go, you come back here every morning, you get on the ship, we, we sail out, we'll sail out for however far we have to go so that we can't see the, the land, and we'll point out to the horizon, we'll shoot, you know, right to left and then left to right, and we're just going to sail along the island between, uh, you know, Malta and Gozo, and we're just going to sail up and down the Med and shoot this scene, and, 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 and that's what we did, and, you know, all the, I'm sure you, you may have read stuff about, like, when we shot the scene of um, of the pirates first, the Somali pirates first entering the the bridge up at the top when they first entered the ship, like Tom Hanks and the the Somali lads had never met, and what what Paul used to do because we shot on film, obviously film you get like on a four hundred foot mag, which is what you'd use for handheld, you get about four minutes on a roll before you have to reload. So what we would do was we would stagger the turnovers. So A camera would start rolling first, then 30 seconds later, B camera starts rolling. So that when everyone's reloading, you don't, someone's capturing something the whole time. And, and you know, we were all just waiting there. And, uh, and then these incredible young Somali lads come up and it's so real and it's so visceral. And you're in there and they, they're shooting the blanks. Da, 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 and, they, and it's such an intense experience. And as a filmmaking experience, it was incredible to witness how he did that. It's incredible as an audience member to watch that scene, Luke. It really came across. It translates uh, to an audience member yeah. and to a viewer because that's the one of the one of the things about that film. I think that that really most people walk away from, it, it, and it, it's encapsulated in the scene when Hanks finally breaks down. Oh. But the breakdown scene doesn't have the power without going without literally feeling like you've gone through that experience. With yeah, it was so it's so well manipulated by him because. She uh, she was a real nurse. She was just the nurse yeah. that was working on that air, air, aircraft carrier. And he didn't mm. tell her who was going to come in. And, and he literally just said, look, we're going to shoot this scene. Someone's going to come in. Just do whatever you do. Ask him the questions you would ask him. You know, and obviously Tom Hanks is like breaking down and he's got, he's clearly in shock and doesn't, whose blood is this? Whose blood is this? I don't know. You know, I don't know. And it's just, it's amazing. And it's all captured for real. And that's, and it's that sort of thing that, that was an amazing experience. And aside from that, you know, being with a group, a film crew, spending a long time abroad, sailing yeah. the med every day. I mean, it's like dream stuff, really. I don't think I'll ever amazing. do that again. Mm. Luke, um, can you tell us and the listeners, what's a crew gift and do you have a favourite? What's a crew gift? Crew gifts are, we're very lucky, we're very privileged because um, not only do we get paid to do our job, we also get fed two meals a day. Um, normally, sometimes three, sometimes Domino's pizza, if you're doing it. <laughs> um, sometimes treat trucks on a Friday. Crew oh, gifts yeah. are generally given out at the end of a film, also probably called a wrap gift. Um, yeah. And it's just, I guess it's a tradition. I d- I'm not really sure where it come from or who started it, but it's a tradition to, at the end of, of principal photography, all the crew members, all the shooting crew certainly, get a get a gift normally it's something like a jacket with the name of the film on um sometimes you also get personal gifts from sort of leading cast i've had a few nice ones from like if you've had a you know a one two and three on the call sheet that have been in every day and they've kind of clubbed together and do a personal gift for a few for some of the crew as well um favorites i mean yeah lots of jackets um got a pair of headphones from matt damon they're quite cool um favorite rap gift probably let me have a think the, the clapperboards behind you <coughs> well clapperboards they're not really gifts and i probably shouldn't really have them <laughs> um, Fair I, did, I did we did get um uh a really cool bag from i did the latest indiana jones movie 
they gave us a really cool travel bag that on the inside of the travel bag, the lining was like, you know, the indie aeroplane traveling through the sky. Oh, yeah. Nice. Well, that's the lining on the inside. And on the outside, it's just got Indiana Jones. You know, you, you wouldn't really know what it was from the outside, but from the inside, it's got that. That was pretty cool. And from Jurassic, I, I've actually done the last two Jurassic World movies. Um, and the cast gave us a gift or gave some people a gift which was a, a blanket, like a picnic blanket with the um, with the Jurassic logo on uh, the second Jurassic World movie. And then on the third one, we've got lunch boxes with a, a little drinks thing as well, again, with the... That sounds cool. Which went straight to my just, So Harry now, just, Harry now has yeah. the lunch box that everyone wants at school. Brilliant. Yeah. Lunchbox movie. better than the film, Ailey. Oh, so I mean, you don't need to answer that question. What a disappointment. Yeah, you kind of mentioned the food. Um, What's your favourite? What's your favourite big eats or your favourite? You know, on-set catering. Brioche buns with lobster this makes it sound so terrible. No, lobster. No one's going to have any sympathy for us. <laughs> but like lobster burgers, it's like a lobster inside a brioche bun. But you know what? The best one was just rounding back to my lovely wife is when we met on a film called Sherlock Holmes, which was the Guy Ritchie, um, Robert Downey Jr., Jude Law film. And we shot on some, in some crazy locations there. It was a really small film, but really intimate, really lovely. And the crew is probably the closest I've ever seen a crew get. Because we were shooting in London every day. Guy, as, as Paddy knows, Guy likes to wrap early. So we would often wrap early and all this young crew would be in London. We'd all go for drinks and it was great. One of the locations that we shot in, like we shot in some weird places in London. One of them was... Um, the place where Jack the Ripper's first victim had been found. That was a really spooky mm. place. One place was in the Houses of Detention in London, which was this oh, wow. Victorian children's prison underground. When we were filming in there, um, I think it must have been, I think it was Valentine's Day. And Jude Law brought in a treat truck for everyone. And it was oysters. And every and so we all had oysters in the houses of detention in a Victorian children's prison, and that was one of the first times I was with um, with my wife. So that was a that was a fun treat story. And I suppose my my other question uh, that I always ask is there a, is there a film that you wish you could have worked on? So I know that for example Patrick would probably. <laughs> Do Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, what about you? Well, I guess so. There's two. There's uh, probably two parts to this answer. The first one is one that I got offered that I didn't take, which was my last year at uni, and um, I had just been offered. I told the story of being offered Harry Potter. At the same time, I got an email from a director, who I guess maybe had got my name from someone on the course or something. And he had this script, and I bless him, I can't remember what the name of the script was, but it was basically like this, it was a bit like Game of Thrones. It was like um, that sort of fantasy thing set in a French chateau or in France and farmland. And he, he sent me the script and he was like, would you be interested in shooting this for me? And at the time, obviously, I had aspirations of going on to become a cameraman. And that was like a moment of should I, shouldn't I? I've just been offered Harry Potter. I can go and do Harry Potter as a trainee or I can go and pursue like, you know, the, the straight to DOPing route, doing short films and not earning any money for, for a, a decade. And, and I made that decision not to do that film um, in, in order to do the traineeship on Harry Potter. And I wonder what would have happened if I had taken that. That's obviously something that I've pondered for a while as for as for ones that I would love to have worked on, I'd love to work on a Muppets movie. <gasps> ah. Oh my god, that's my one of my regrets, Luke. I was working on Sherlock and I got offered Muppets Most Wanted and I couldn't and I <laughs> I deeply regret it. Yeah. I mean that's gotta be that's gotta be so much fun. Who's your film industry hero, Luke? I tell you what, I, I mean it's probably a bit of an overstatement to call him a hero but certainly someone that I really respected and really enjoyed working with was a director called Roger Michelle. He mm -hmm. directed Notting Hill. He's like a big time British director. Probably most people won't know his name, won't be a household name, but I did. Um, we took over on a film called my cousin Rachel with him. 
and he just he he just had the loveliest way about him he's the friendliest sets that i've ever worked on he made an effort to learn everybody's name which makes a huge difference even if you're there for a day just guesting on a show or if you were there for the whole time he would make an effort to learn your name and he had a lovely nature where after each take he would call cut and then he would just sit in silence for 30 seconds or whatever thinking and then he'd either say moving on we've got it or he'd come up with a note and it would be really insightful and it would and and it was and and he would no matter what question you asked him it was the same process you know what would you like for lunch he'd stop (laughs) for a few seconds and and then he'd answer the question and you could just tell that he was going through in his head every permutation should i have the sausages (laughs) <laughs> what's the best decision to make here and then he would he would make the decision and it would always be the right decision and he did that throughout everything he did and he was such a lovely bloke and he passed away a couple of years ago and he was he was a great person to work with and he again another one of those people that reignites your love and enjoyment of working on a film set seeing him work and and because when someone's taking that long to think about even the smallest little questions you know that everything is is as it should be because he's not he's not just flippantly saying oh yeah put put the chair over there in the scene doesn't matter oh yeah you could say that walking through that door there was none of that everything was considered and and that was lovely to observe and very different to a lot of people we work with yeah Luke thank you um that was really really great chat thank you and I I'll come away from this just um I really loved what you said about if you want something you got to go for it. I think that's fantastic advice but the way you said it was something really cut through me so I thank you for that because um I can I wholeheartedly agree and uh your career's been wonderful to watch. We always knew you'd um have a great career, you know, even back then. I know I half joked you were the golden boy but you you were great at uni and you've been great in the last uh 10 years and i really look forward to the next chat when we talk about your first or your progression as a camera operator yeah thank you very much thank you so much for having me and hopefully it's not um hopefully i don't have to bump into patrick on a film set and don't have to bump into galley at a pizza restaurant in glasgow um, yeah, just to, to see you all. That was, that was yeah. Pikachu, wasn't it? Yeah. No, I think, I think uh, that was Jurassic Two, or it might have been Batgirl. That was never seen. What a shame! The Forgotten Batgirl. Wow, Batgirl. it'll come out. I promise you. <laughs> and and now now what you need to do, Luke, is uh, is obviously bring bring Sarah to the party. Now that now that you know that we're we're harmless, I'm sure she'll be very happy to have a rebuttal. So, listeners, I hope you really enjoyed that. Um, Luke there giving us the inside track on how to, you know, be successful and, and make friends and influence people. Pretty, pretty damn good. Um, our next open slate, well, hopefully we'll uh, we'll be able to get uh, the other Selway, Sarah, and she can give us a, an insight from uh, from her her role. Um, but no, just again, thank you very much, Luke. And yeah, we will uh, we will put everything in the show notes that we can. Uh, including that uh, that Empire article because it is uh, it is wicked. Yeah. And Patch is absolutely right. You know, been following your career from afar, um, and it's always just amazing. I'm just very very kind of proud to see. Um, so I know that guy. He's a cat. Yeah, that's what I say <laughs> sometimes. Anyone can do it. Anyone can do it, and they should. And it's a really it's a fantastic industry to be part of, and and you feel very privileged to do it. Um, and 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 it can be so much fun, and I think that's the that's the main thing I would I would want everyone to take away from it is that if you have the right attitude and and you you look at things with the right perspective, no matter the fact that you're doing a job, you know you're you know you're you're putting focus on Tom Cruise running towards you with an explosion going on in the background, like it's it's <laughs> amazing. In slow motion, mm. yeah. In slow motion, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, to say a quote from one of your favourite films, a real man makes his own look, right, Jack? You know? <laughs> classic, classic <laughs> stuff from Luke. Well, um, we'll say our goodbyes then, team. So uh, it's Gally signing out. Stay safe, everyone, and thank you again, Luke. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Gally. Thanks, Luke. That was um, a real pleasure.
And Luke signing off from the lovely Surrey Hills. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewire Movie Podcast.